0: Welcome back to the Todd Duncan Podcast. This is where success happens. A member of the industry syndicate. Todd's goal is to transform your business and life through deeper connections, higher trust, and proven strategies to help you win and give you your best life ever.
1: Hey, it's Todd Duncan. Welcome to the Where Success Happens Podcast. Excited to be with you guys again. Uh, Every time we do one of these, the goal is super straightforward. We want to give you ideas through story, through interviews, through dialoguing with people that I really am attracted to because of not only who they are as individuals, but what they do for the world. And the goal is super simple. Just take an idea or two away and put that into your business and your life. And as a result of that we feel that you will achieve new levels and heightened levels of both success and significance. I feel really special to have our guest today. We've uh, met uh, halfway through the year last year and uh, had an amazing experience with our guest at at Sales Mastery. And kind of given the state of the world right now and given where so much uncertainty exists and and really taking a look at, at some of the, um, the things that are really getting kind of raw and real as we navigate life and, and COVID and, and all of that, um, I think this guy's message is more relevant today than it could ever be. And so I'm going to welcome a good friend of mine, Joel Manby, to our, our podcast. And uh, Joel, you look fantastic. It's great to see you again. And uh, welcome to Where Success Happens.
0: Thank you so much, Todd. It's great to see you. It's great to be with you again. Yeah, we we met right in the middle of COVID and just had a lot to share. It was, it was fantastic. It's great. It was amazing.
1: Yeah, it was amazing to me on on how we got together. But what was even more amazing is getting to know you, and really getting to know your story, getting to know your heart, um, getting to know this like this book, uh, Love Works. I mean, it's it's like wow. It's the Ultimate double entendre. Love <laughs> works, right? It works. Love works. And what are the works of love, right? And uh, and I thought before we get into get into like like maybe some of the the works and, and the words and the, the whole idea of love. Um, give everybody, if they don't know who Joel Mamby is, give us a you know a ten minute what's your story five minute whatever it takes. Tell us your story because uh, I don't want to give it away. It's an impressive story.
0: Well, thanks, Todd. I really do appreciate that. And we did have a special time together. Um, I can imagine most of your listeners, when they hear a, a book or a message around love, especially in a business context, it, it might set some people off. I, I know for me, it probably, uh, when I first heard, a call, it's really a definition of servant leadership, if you want to call it servant leadership. It does tend to set some people off because we're so trained to think about you know, work and business and leadership is all about hitting the numbers. It's just hitting the financial numbers and it tends to be how we're all trained in the business world. And so for me, uh, even talking about this conceptually, I know that sometimes I'm up against a language barrier with with some people. And I just want to put the, any of your listeners at ease that I felt the same way when I was talked to about servant leadership, but I, I can to tell my story, I really, um, without going into tons of detail, I can really bifurcate it in two 20-year chunks of leadership. I've been a leader for 40 years. I'm, I'm 62. I've le- I I've led coming right out of undergraduate. I was actually a plant foreman right out of undergrad. So I've always led people and even led people before that in sports teams. In the first 20 years, I would call it my kind of pre-servant leadership leadership phase. And the second 20 years was post-servant leadership. And so as I tell the story, keep that in mind because the the first 20 years was basically, I I grew up in Battle Creek, grew up very poor. My dad was a, a failed entrepreneur making about 50 bucks a week for five years. My mom told me when he died. So I grew up without resources, but my dad taught me a really strong work ethic. Um, just really work hard um, and and be good to people and they'll be good back to you. But as I got into the work world, I didn't see much of that. I I went in the auto industry. Um, As I said, I was a platform in General Motors. I rose up very quickly through the ranks and actually at, at an age of about 35, exactly 35, I became CEO of Saab North America, which was very young, in the GM system to be a leader of a division that size. But even though all that time, those of 20 years of being promoted and getting to that level, although I was commercially successful, I could tell you, I, I felt a huge angst or maybe call it a hole in my soul because I knew there had to be a better way to lead than what I was being modeled and what I saw. It was all about the numbers it was all about kind of a fear-based culture and if you didn't hit your numbers you were out the door. there was not a great concern for people but it wasn't just the concern that bothered the lack of concern it was the lack of creativity, the lack of ingenuity that I saw around me because people worked scared it was more fear-based and I just knew there there had to be a better way but but Todd I never I never saw a model so even though, For me, I came up in a a faith-filled family, and faith was an important part of my life. And I felt, boy, you know, this this man Jesus, this person, talks about love, but I don't see it anywhere out there in the workforce. So I had this kind of angst of, you know, there there must be a different way because I hear this this one message at church or one message from my parents, and I don't see it anywhere in the work world. And then I was recruited away from Saab to actually run an Amazon.com startup called greenlight.com. So back some of your listeners may not remember in 1999, 2000, you could buy a car on Amazon. That was our company. And Jeff Bezos was on our board and I was in many meetings with him, which is kind of a whole story in and of itself. But when that implosion happened in the dot-com era in 2000, we were forced to sell our company because we had no cash, um, our, our valuation went down. Our, 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 actually, our closing on our funds was pulled because of the implosion, and so we are left with very little cash. and And was what I would call my first failure uh, in business, which everybody goes through, and and I went through one there. But what was the reason that was a huge turnaround point for me is up until this point, Todd, I, I think I masked this, I'm missing something. I mass this angst. I mass the fact that leaders around me weren't stepping up and caring about their people. And I, I kind of turned the other cheek, so to speak, and just let it happen because I was being successful. I was commercially successful, but then when green light happened and we were forced to sell, I was, I was at an incredibly low point, Todd. I, I thought about getting out of business. I thought about even getting into counseling or coaching or something completely different because it just wasn't meeting my heart need. But by a, a really a, a miracle that that Jack Hershend, who is the owner of Hershend Enterprises, which is a massive theme park company, I was already on their board, but only a board member. He called me. And he asked me to be chairman and eventually CEO of his company, because he was getting ready to retire. And it was such a miracle because I had no theme park experience, <laughs> I didn't understand servant leadership culture, but he saw something in me and in my heart that drew him, which is why I think it was a miracle or a God thing or whatever you want to call it, yeah. that brought me to Herschend as the, as eventually the CEO. And what Jack taught me then was all about servant leadership and the fact that we all as Americans, especially, we focus on do goals all the time. We focus on getting it done, hitting the objective, hitting the financials, but we don't focus on be goals We don't focus on who we want to be as leaders, who we want to be as people. And so the vernacular that we developed at Hershey Entertainment ended up being the seven words of love that are outlined in the book Love Works. And it basically, it's an ethos of the company. It is the definition of its culture. And we didn't just teach people how to hit the numbers. We taught people how to be loving leaders. And and we can come back to these words, but the words are being patient, being kind, which is showing encouragement and enthusiasm. It's being trusting and trustworthy. It's being truthful to people, telling them the truth about themselves and where the company is. It's being forgiving, it's, which is, you know, we all know what that means. It's just really hard to do. Mm-hmm. It's being unselfish, and it's being dedicated to those seven words, which means not just making those words a plaque on the wall, like right. companies do. It's all the process that you know that we can go into if we have time to go behind it. But the result of that, Todd, was it, it it changed my life from seeing work as just a, a some metric thing that is is about being successful numerically or financially to what kind of person am I when I lead and how do I treat people? It's it's all about behavior, it's not about feeling. And so we applied these principles to probably 12 different acquisitions that we had within Hershen or SeaWorld where I went after Hershen. Um, and I can tell you very consistently, they get tremendous results financially, but also employee engagement is very high, turnover is very low. And so it was the answer to that angst I felt inside about there must be a better way. and. Just to finish out the story, what, what happened at Hershend is uh, our company was was featured on Undercover Boss, which is that huge CBS, very successful CBS program where the CEO goes undercover. And when the nation saw that program, about 20 million people saw it because we filed the NCAA quarterfinals, we were just inundated with people saying, that's the kind of leadership I want to work with or for. And What what occurred to me, Todd, is I'm not the only one that had that angst. I'm not the only one that saw that leadership crisis, that leadership void. And so that's why I wrote the book Love Works, is to show others that it is possible to model it for other people. Because in the first 20 years of my career, it was never modeled to me. And I don't want other leaders, including the leaders listening to your podcast, I don't want them to wait 20 years to find out what I found out at forty years old, I want them to find out when they're twenty and twenty-five and thirty, because it—if you care about people—I feel like this is the only way to lead. And um, I just w- wanted to get something out there that gave a modeling to folks. So, in a nutshell, that's that's the career of what led me up to to uh, to write "Love Works," and at the SeaWorld experience, just closing out with that. I really wanted to take the Love Works principles to a larger stage. Hershend was, you know, they had all the Dolly Parton properties, the Harlem Globetrotters, brands that people would recognize, but they weren't to the scale and size or public mm-hmm. recognition that SeaWorld was. So, um, decided to take it there, and and that was an incredible experience as well. But love really is uh, the answer for me, not only in your personal life but also in a work
1: setting. Yeah. It's a beautiful way to start a beautiful conversation. And I think that, um, you know, at the end of the day, your, your ethos as a leader has to be, Joel, use that word care. And, and there's nobody that will ever work for anybody who leads well when they know you care. And, and I think a lot of people are going to go through the transformation of thinking that's actually the strongest skill, even though it's a soft skill it's the strongest skill a leader has. And I think what's interesting about love works and the, and the idea that these are timeless principles. What I love about the fact that it's timeless is you don't have to reinvent no. a truth. You don't have to, you, you know, you call them principles, timeless principles A principle. If it's the right principle is irrefutable and, and irrefutable is like people love being loved and people love being heard and people love being cared for. People love, feeling uh pride and 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 achievement and accomplishment and these are all principles that are human behavior principles and i don't think a lot of people come to the leadership at least i know when i first became a leader like you it was like here's here's the here's the uh business plan here's the p l you know here's the metrics here's this 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 and this and i think i don't i don't know if i took 20 years to figure it out but i don't think i perfected it anywhere near as fast as I could have. So I, I want to unpack this a little bit. How did you, so I, I I, hope everybody knows the SeaWorld story, but in case they don't, talk briefly about that. Because yeah. I remember in our first exchange that, that that's where, I mean, the way that you navigated that whole thing was with these principles. And it actually... Put you in a position where you now are a voice to leaders around the world. Um, so just give everybody in brevity the SeaWorld story.
0: Sure. Absolutely. C- SeaWorld, um, I think, had to be one of the toughest CEO jobs in America in 2015, 2016, when I had it. Um, it, it, is a, it was a great paradox what was going on there. The very thing that made SeaWorld famous, which is Shamu the Killer Whale, had become its biggest liability. And that doesn't that paradox doesn't happen very often in business where your biggest asset becomes your biggest liability. Like, <laughs> like, like overnight. You know, we had a death for those who don't know, we had a death of a trainer uh, by a killer whale, the animal activists, especially PETA, uh positioned it as Uh, It was because we mistreated the animals and we're a bad company. And then there was a movie called Blackfish that came out that uh, our trustworthiness ratings as an entity went from 65 percent trustworthy to only 30 percent trustworthy within six months of Blackfish being shown over 500 times on CNN, uh, which I have to be careful what I say. They purport themselves to be a news agency, but that film would never pass any of its news agency uh, criteria for for honest and true stories. I mean, it was 5% truthful, but a hundred percent effective in destroying the company's reputation. And our sales had tanked. Actually the previous CEO was let go because of the lack of response to Blackfish. And there was also legislation coming up against the company. So I was brought in to turn the organization around and I could give several stories, but I'll give one if if you don't mind me going. Yeah, go that you know, one of the words of love that I described was truthfulness and trustworthiness, and I first of all I had to be really truthful with our team of how dire the situation was. Our sales had cut in half. Our cash flow in a fixed cost business had cut in half. We had massive layoffs. We had to go through, and it was a frank conversation of. You know the survival of the 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 few, um, and sometimes some people have to go. Otherwise, every the whole organization is going to fold, and that's a really difficult conversation. But we also had to pivot away from animal entertainment, and so there was a lot of repositioning from a brand standpoint. But the story of trusting happened when we ended up trusting a enemy of ours, so to speak. Um, PETA was one animal active, activist group. The other was called Humane Society of the United States, but they were much more rational. And their CEO, Wayne Paselli and I, we met in in private because we knew our two companies would not want us talking to each other. Um, it's almost like, you know, maybe Pelosi and Trump, that kind of <laughs> hatred of each other, you know, or the company's hatred of each other, uh, just to give an example. But we developed trust and. He ended up supporting our move. We ended orca breeding, frankly, we were going to have to, because we were being outlawed in the state of California. And we felt like it was just going to move East. So our only decision was if it's outlawed in one state, do we take it to Texas and Florida or other two parks? We decided to do that, but we had to trust people that had formerly been our enemies. And when we came out with this announcement to stop whale breeding, Wayne went on TV with me to CBS Good Morning and Fox and Friends and ABC, all the all the talk shows, all the newspapers, so that he could say this is a good company who's taken a very difficult step in his business model to try to move in the right direction because marine mammals in captivity is not going to be 50 years ago, 50 years t- from now, what it is today. It's just kind of a dying thing in society. So. That's one example of many of where we used trustworthiness, which is one of the words of love to help turn the company around. And within three, three years, our trustworthiness had gone up. The numbers had come back and uh, now they're, they're more valuable as a company than, you know, even before Blackfish, but it, it, it was hard. I mean, there were, there were dark days, uh, many dark days and some of the board didn't always support what I wanted to do from a, how we treat people. Um, but it was a great, great
1: experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it positioned you now to have this great platform on a very um, unique and fresh and different approach to leadership. And you and I, you and I know each other well enough, and I think we know other leaders well enough to know that um, love is part of culture, and love is not um, a word that makes an organization soft. Love no. is a word that makes an organization it together, it feeds culture. And we're we're here we are, you know, we're, we're um, 18 months into this COVID thing. There's a lot of question marks everywhere. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of just craziness going on. We've got an economy that is showing some very, very desperate signs of what may or may not happen in terms of market corrections. We have all kinds of things going on with social and economic and and even political issues. Uh, The world feels like it needs a lot of love right now. And I was just on a webinar with about 300 leaders from a global organization. And one of the questions that one of the leaders asked was a leader, uh, it was a question about how do I, how do I use my leadership platform to actually influence my followers? And I thought about you, I knew that we were gonna be coming up on this and, and, uh, and I said, you know, if people love you and trust you, they're gonna love you and trust you because of what you have done for them, not because of who you are by title. So why don't you go off on, on just maybe riffing around, here we are in uncertain times yet again, um, there's polarity, there's lots of lines drawn in the sand and, and yet businesses today have to thrive and if, if leaders react to these outside things, they lose this centeredness that I think Love Works actually teaches. Um, and I, th- I think the way we get through challenges is with love. And, and it's not a weak statement, it's a, it's a powerful statement. And culture always wins. I believe culture always wins. I believe culture eats strategy for lunch. And Love Works is a beautiful platform for cultural impact. Yes. So what word is most important to you besides love? And and go off on that for a little bit. I mean, love and trustworthiness, huge, but as a word and, and given the time as we're in, how would you advise leaders listening or watching this? I
0: I definitely want to answer your question, but you said something that was so powerful. I think it needs to be reiterated to people in that love is not soft and love is not easy. And people, the biggest problem with the term love works, actually a publisher didn't want me to use it as a book title, is because it's misinterpreted as love the emotion, or as the Greeks would call eros love, right? Americans have a very limited vocabulary when it comes to these kind of Uh, emotions or, or activities or behaviors, but this is actually the Greek word agape is the kind of love I'm talking about. It is a behavior. It's, it's how you treat people. It's not, it's not a soft emotion. It's actually very difficult to be patient or honest with people or forgiving of people. Look, I, I worked both ways. 20 years, I would say I was not a great servant leader 20 years. I'd say I was It's harder to lead as a servant leader. It's not soft. It's difficult because you still have to hold people accountable, but you have to do it in a way that protects their dignity and hopefully keeps them coming back for another day of work, even though you've just had a a tough conversation with them. So thank you for saying that because most people apply the wrong definition in their mind of what love is. They think emotion and soft, it's, it's a behavior and it's hard to do. So thank you for that. But to answer your question, um, yeah, I, as you ask, a couple words came to mind or actually three or four that depending on how much time we have. I, one, the first word in the seven is patient. And normally that means let's be patient with others when things don't go well. Let's praise in public in a mosh pile. Let's t- don't take them to the woodshed public. <clears throat> but I think in COVID right now, so with everything you've mentioned and how uneasy it feels right now, politically, racially, economically, I think uneasiness is how I would describe how I feel. I think patience in this case means patience with ourself or what I would call, you know, soul care. Mm -hmm. I, and I know this sounds a little soft, but we need to, we need to pay attention to ourselves. And when you and I talked this morning, you were on the way to the gym and I thought, good for Todd. He's, he's taking care of his physical self, but it's our spiritual Whatever your spiritual element is, it's important to stay there. Quietness. I when I'm on my game, I'm I'm in quiet time or or my emotional health. I mean, you you've read the stats the 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 suicide rate, the the mental depression out there, and anxiety is at an all time high. I would just encourage your listeners to be patient with yourself and make sure we are take care taking care of ourselves because feeding our soul. And keeping healthy is not selfish. I actually think it's stewardship. If we, because no no weary leader can be a great leader, and I think it's okay to be patient with ourselves. That we may not feel at our best right now. We may not feel like being a great leader, but we we have to take care of ourselves first. Just, does that resonate with you at
1: all? Well, I tell people all the time and they, and, and they look at me like cocky eyed and like, what do you really mean? And I say, listen, you have to take care of number one. Right. And when you look at any structure of human behavior, human performance, um, it all starts with the person and, you know, whether you are a leader that is trying to, through a startup or you're a leader that is turning around an organization or you're a leader that is building an enterprise, if you don't take care of you, and I, I want to say this uniquely and, and carefully, you can't take care of anybody. Not that I want you to show up at work as a leader thinking you're a babysitter and you have to take care of people. In any relational structure that has human beings, being, human performance, trust, love connection, you got to take care of number one, because you can't then be what God's got you set up to be. You can't be the husband or the wife that you want to be. I mean, fatigue is real and patience is hard and you've got to make time. I had somebody today on this, this leadership call say, um, I, I feel guilty if I'm not available 24 seven to my global enterprise and it crosses nine countries and." And, and she really, you could see her starting to cry, and she's got a mammoth organization. And I said, I said you're burning out, and the message that you're going to send is it's okay to burn out. And what you need to do is gain respect from your team by putting some boundaries on self-care, soul care. I love those two words, soul care, health care. And people don't do that. And I, I really think that, that the idea of loving um, people starts with loving yourself. And I think leaders have to love not in a prideful way, they have to love the gift of life. They have to love the gift of journey. They have to love the gift of title and responsibility, because my dad told me a long time ago, "If you don't love what you do, right. you should not be doing it." And so I'm fascinated with I'm fascinated with the fact that emotional connection, I believe, is missing in leadership. I believe that leaders don't take enough time to really get to know their people, whatever your inner circle, your first layer is all the way through your organization. You got to teach people to love people. And I said to this group this morning, interested in your thoughts, I said, you can't move people physically to a new behavior until you first move them emotionally, which is why I was so intrigued by when I first met you in the book and and where we are today on the podcast is if people know that, you know, what's important to them, right. And you can help fashion a relationship that gives them more of that. Accountability goes from being punitive to being desired. Yeah, because it changes my life. And if I follow you, because you've loved on me, and you've changed the trajectory of my life. And I'm a leader now in the company. Think about how that starts to replicate. I I I think this is a very, very well-timed
0: I could not agree more with what you word, just said.
1: Word for leaders, because you <laughs> <laughs> and you can't be hard on yourself. The whole patience thing, you know, I think perfection is harmful. I think progress is healthy, and I think growth is optional. And hmm. I think far too often, if you're not patient, and you don't teach your team to be patient, um, people burn out,
0: and they, they feel less
1: work. than, they feel shame, they feel guilt, they feel all that stuff. So your words and your works in this book are just profound. So anyway, no, I, 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 have I, I go off on something, <laughs> something because you went off on something.
0: <laughs> no, no, it's, it's
1: <clears throat> I feel for that
0: young lady. The story you told about the time zones because. When I ran Saab North America, I had Asia markets as well. And, you know, you're always on an early morning call with Europe and a late morning, late night call with Japan or or Asia. But my heart breaks for her. But you said the right thing for all your listeners. If nothing can make up for uh, your own personal failure or um, if you melt down or burn out or make a, you know, you and I talked about and I don't mind sharing it. When I was in a really low point in my life and wasn't practicing soul care, wasn't practicing taking care of myself, I I had dysfunctional behavior ended up costing me my first marriage, which is still the biggest regret of my life. And if I can stop one other person from doing that, because I didn't practice this kind of patient soul care for myself when I was, I was working 20 hours a day, seven days a week, trying to turn these organizations around and I can definitively say it's not worth it. it yeah. You, it's not. So I, I would keep preaching that brother because you're, if you say one person with your influence from having that kind of a personal meltdown, um, you've done it, The, you've done a great job. The one other word that it's, it's a little dicey that, but I'd like to talk through with you cause I wonder how you feel about it. Yeah. Um, we, we know that politically right now, it's dicey. The, the race issue makes it hard to have certain conversations with people. Um, in, in a way, even though truthfulness is so important, it almost feels dangerous right now to tell the truth or to be completely honest with how you feel. And we're, we're all afraid we're going to offend somebody or something we say on social media. And it seems like no matter what we say, we do offend somebody. And the downside to that, where where I'm afraid we're headed is we stop wanting to be truthful because we're afraid of the ramifications and we must stick to being truthful, not only with our organizations and where the organization is, but also how people are performing and great leaders take the time to communicate to their organization where the organization is and also with individuals, where the individual is, and and it makes me think two different thoughts. Now, communicate them, and then you can you can comment back on the on the being afraid to tell the truth part. I think we've lost, we're losing the ability in society to dialogue, and we're just monologuing. Whether it's social media or the way the press communicates, it's just one way, and it's always. Twisted facts and twisted logic to get their point across at least I shouldn't say always but usually and We must get back as leaders to dialoguing with people where the disagreements are How we can get to a better solution make sure our employees feel heard. I mean Jack Kirshen taught me this great tool when you're in a meeting you're trying to get answers out of your people you don't give the direction that you think should happen ask everybody in the room, in your inner circle, what they think you should do. Make sure that way you're getting the truth out of them, not their politically correct answer to you. And then the magic was when he made a decision, he'd go back around the room and tell everybody, here's what I heard from you and you wanted to go direction A, I want to go B and here's why. And he would he would show them that he heard them, but he would also tell the truth back to them. And it was so powerful. And I just feel like as a society, we're getting away from that. And it it really, it really scares me because we must be truthful in this country. We have, our issues are way too big as leaders, as family leaders, or as uh, uh, our political leaders to not have truth. So that's that's another word that's very important to me.
1: Well, I I think for me, as I listen to that, um, I I think that, that, people that are listening and watching this really need to gravitate to the idea that truth is powerful and truth said lovingly is very inviting and the responsibility of a leader is to be lovingly truthful. And what right. I what I what I've recognized and I tell leaders this all the time is that The longer you avoid hard conversations, the harder they become. And there's a gap, I think, between um, at least leaders, maybe not fully understanding leadership, and they're still like managing. You manage assets, but you got to lead people. The, The idea behind a hard conversation is the leader needs to understand it's actually the right thing to do for the person. And, you know, we'll put political over here and and maybe we'll put religion over here and, and whatever that ends up being, it ends up being. But if we're looking at pure leadership, the gift that you give through a hard conversation can change a person's life. And the time between when you know you should have that conversation and the time you have it is the magic hour because leaders that don't understand how to have a lovingly hard conversation end up underserving the talent, the human capital that they're actually ha- that they actually have on payroll. And so Deb and I we we kind of arrive at this point and I do it here. And I really appreciate what you just said because I'm about ready to go into a meeting that has a lot to do with the future of our company. And I have really clear ideas on what I want to do. But I'm not clear that my team knows, you know, what we want to do. And I'm not clear that I know what they would like to do. And it's a vital conversation to have because you're not a leader. If you use authority to lead, right. You're a leader when you use attraction to lead. At some level, people want to be attracted to a leader. So Deb and I, you know, I mean, marriages have hard conversations and and leaders and followers have hard conversations, but um, our our pathway to that is, hey baby, I really really love you. What I'm about to say, I don't want it to come out the wrong way, but or and or whatever, and we do it in both ways, you know. And it's just like we we think that that any of these conversations are like speed bumps on a road, and the longer we don't address whatever it is, they become bigger and bigger. And anybody knows when you go over a big speed bump that's not engineered the right way. It's a lot more in, in invasive to the car and to you than going over a small speed bump. Everything that doesn't get handled, that's important, gets worse and harder to handle. So, I mean, the loving thing to do is to have a loving conversation. Uh, you, love you and
0: I think that's that. That's so critical. You yeah, so, bring up the timing issue and I'm so glad you did because every everyone listening to this podcast right now, And they're hearing this conversation. They probably have a little angst in their stomach of, "Oh, I know I need to have this truthful conversation with so and so," and you know what? To your point, it needs to be tomorrow, or it needs to be as short as gap as possible. The more we do it, the easier it gets. Um, You know, I always use the kind of start-stop-start-continue format where you give them some balance, so it's not just negative. It's you need to stop doing this and start doing that, but. I want you to continue to do such an amazing job at this. So we give them some balance, but boy, you're right. Um, waiting too long is damaging and we can change people's lives by being truth tellers to them. Um, one, one, one point before I go to an, a, a third word it, that I want to emphasize what you said, you're going in to talk to your team. And what I see more and more right now with leaders is, We've already said it. every everything feels a little unstable right now, whether a business model may be changing or there's high turnover right now, a lot of people taking new jobs. So yeah. teams are changing. Strategies may be changing. You know, we may have a, a correction coming. And so what, what's that going to do to our, our capacity as an organization in the mortgage business? All those things give us uncertainty. I think as leaders, so many times we want to go into those meetings and give real certainty of what the future is going to be. I, I think we can't. We don't know, but we can give clarity. And you use that term. I I need to be clear with them. Even if you only know the first step of a five-step process or the first step of a massive change that's coming or a first step in an organization restructure, I believe it's better to keep your whole team clear than necessarily certain about everything. And, and I love, I love the fact that you use that term focusing on clarity, not necessarily certainty because the future is, is too, un, un, uh, unsure. You know John
1: Maxwell used to say, he said, fuzzy leaders have fuzzy followers. And it's <laughs> like, the, the, you got to be clear, right? Because yeah. if you're not clear, nobody else is going to be clear. It doesn't mean you have to be right. And it most certainly doesn't mean you have to have it all figured out. There's so much power in engagement. When the team can see a dream and see a vision and they can rally behind it because then they feel that they have a stake in it. And I do agree with you that I think far too many leaders are trying to lead through authority, title, and expectation, board pressure, financial pressure, all that kind of stuff, when at the end of the day, you lead by connection. You lead by having a connected workforce that trusts you, and they show up every single day, and they trust you because you are a leader that has their best interests in mind. And it's uniquely almost kind of a dichotomy or a paradox because that's actually how you get better performance out of people
0: it by is a- having
1: them feel a higher level of engagement and being excited about what's next. Right? And
0: it takes, it, you know, it takes a, a very secure leader to go into a room and say, "All right." here's our issues, what do you guys think we should do? And listen, short saying, here's where we're going and not get, getting that chance to have that real truthful feedback from them because they're smart people, they wouldn't be on your team if they weren't. And you still have the ultimate call of where yeah. we're going and by giving them a chance to speak doesn't take away any of your authority, it actually builds your authority. So I love what you're saying there. Um,
1: so we talked about patience, kindness, trustworthiness, uh, truthful, Give us one more love works, and then uh, we'll make sure everybody knows how to get a hold of the book. And uh, obviously, follow you on social. And uh,
0: let me go back. I, I want to go back to trustworthiness on one point that I didn't make. I, I think is really important that I've seen in the in the in the context of this crisis we're in and COVID and this uneasiness we feel. I see so many leaders, including myself. I think when we're entrepreneurial and we get under pressure we tend to shrink in our inner circle and we tend to almost take more control because we trust ourselves. We trust our own decisions. And yet when things are so uncertain and things may change, I actually think our inner circle, a our inner circle may change and we may bring a different set of people around the table. But when we feel a need to bring it in, I actually think we should push out our influence and push out those we're talking to actually try to listen to a broader range of people and that that opens us up so we're not so controlling and uh kind of have to make all the decisions and so trusting means giving authority to people who deserve to be making certain decisions and also even being clear in the decision making process i think that's really important and trustworthiness and i um yeah, I, I've seen I've gone both ways where I pull it in in a crisis and you definitely need to make quick decisions. But I also think it's important to get a, a wider spread of people that you're listening to. Um, the The last one I'm going to say is kindness. And you've heard me probably say this before, but kindness does not mean we are nice to people all the time. We can't be we just like you said, you have to have difficult conversations with people. But the thing I see over and over again, and I just don't understand why humans, why we're all wired this way, is we tend not to be encouragers. And kindness does mean being an encourager, an enthusiastic encourager. And um, I've read some scientific reports um, and, and others speak on this, that you actually need five pieces of encouragement for every one negative that you get to feed your soul and to to kind of keep positive on a positive trajectory. Now, I think that's almost impossible. If we can even do two to one, I think we're doing better than most leaders. But every survey I've seen, and and, and Gallup has clearly defined the six things that increase employee engagement. One of them is is getting encouragement or getting uh, positive reinforcement on the job. It's free, it doesn't cost us a cent, and yet in my experience as a CEO and all the surveys I've done, employee surveys, it consistently ranks lowest of anything we can do in making people feel engaged at the job. So my point is, please encourage people, especially right now, whether it's a handwritten note, a phone call, a, You know, I, I prefer a handwritten note than an email any day, but it's, it's just ch- taking the focus off of us Onto them, which I know is a juxtaposition to our first point of taking care of ourselves. But once we do take care of ourselves, I think encouragement is just underrated and underdone in our society.
1: I uh, I cannot agree with you more, and I think that it's it's very interesting because there is a proclivity to think that um, I've got to correct people. And I remember a very early conversation one of my my good friends. He's He's 20 years older than me, but Ken Blanchard, who's, you know, one of the great leadership trainers. And I remember him saying uh, we hired him to speak in Hawaii in 2000. I think I remember him saying that here's the key to leadership four pats on the back, one kick in the ass. (laughs)
0: <laughs> it's the same thing then really yeah
1: it's the same thing four pats on the back mine was
0: five the <laughs> <laughs> I love
1: and, it. and it was interesting because he said and this is this is something that joel i want to give you and i'm sure you know it but i want to give everybody that's going to be listening and watching this on the way into the office whatever that is um and then consistently through the day what i learned from ken what i tried to emulate is who deserves my praise today? Yep. Who deserves my praise today? And you go out of your way to make that person feel special and you hosted ways on on how to do that. But there's no substitution for. I mean, I did this morning, I put my hands on the shoulder of one of my guys, which I can do from an HR standpoint. And I looked him in the eyes and I said, you're amazing. Thank you so much for all the work you did on our white paper that went out today. Wow. And I That's looked great. him in the eyes and you could just tell that that made all because he's just knocking it out, you know, a couple of hours, just boom, 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 to stop long enough and just look him in the eyes and thank him. And I think this is what we need to do more often. And there's nothing that there's nothing negative about praising people honestly, transparently, authentically, yes, real. It has you know, to be all. So I can't, can't agree
0: no Yeah, false praise won't get you anywhere. But you know it. what that does to you, Todd. When you come in and you're when you start your day thinking that way, yeah, it's a great practice for all of your listeners to follow. And, and Jack Hershman, by the way, he did the same thing. He started the day and he did it with four you know four notes that he would write. But you're you're thinking on the way in. And it puts your mindset positive for the day, as opposed to all the things that are going to go wrong. You're thinking of things that went right yesterday. I right. can praise for it's a powerful principle for your listeners to take with them in their leadership journey. But um, thank you for giving me the opportunity to to go into a few of those.
1: No, it's, it's been awesome. So how, how do people, your social media right now is beautiful. I mean, I, I love what I'm seeing on social and just, uh, you know, the, the reminders that you're putting out how do people, what are your social media coordinates? How do people stay in touch? Yeah, with if,
0: if they just go on LinkedIn or Facebook, I have a professional page and just search Joel Manby. It'll, it'll come up or Joelmanby.com is a website. They can order love works there. Obviously it's available on Amazon and other places as well. But if on my website, there are some free tools that come with the book, especially um, tips on how to lead through this crisis right now through COVID crisis that might be beneficial to your listeners. But um, so those are the those are the best ways. And and there's some blogs there on the website as well. So joelmanby.com or LinkedIn and Facebook. But thank you so much for having me. I love I just love our conversations. We are so equally yoked in so many ways. And uh, I hope I get to see you again live soon.
1: You will, my friend, and thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, an exceptional, if you're a leader watching this, an exceptional dialogue to share with your inner circle, to share with your leadership team, and for them to share with their leadership teams. Because at every level in an organization, somebody's leading somebody. Yes. And we just got to understand that. And so, Joel, you're a remarkable human being. I have loved getting to know you. And this book, Love Works, Seven Timeless Principles for Effective Leaders, You got to make it a mandate. You got to read it in the next 30 days, and make sure you, at the end of the summer, uh, equipped to lead with love and all these powerful truths. So, way to go, man! I'll talk to you soon.
0: Thank you so much, Todd. Good to be with you. Cheers.